Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Creed is a four-week series of Cal St. G Academy. Each week, we'll take an informative and edifying look at the Apostles' Creed. These talks are recorded live every Sunday at Calvary Church. So, from the start of the Creed to the finish, we've seen that the Creed affirms the material world. Remember how I talked about how in opposition to rival systems of thought that denigrated the body, that thought the body was gross or something to be avoided or escaped, the ancient catechism that we are looking at confessed God as the maker, redeemer, and sanctifier of the material world. So the life of the flesh is not gross or alien to God. According to the early Christians, it is God's creature and the object of his loving intentions. So, in that first part of the creed, remember the first part of God the Father, uh, it proclaimed God as the creator of all things, not only of the spiritual world, but also of the material world. Remember when we said, I believe in God, Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. The second part of the creed confesses the Son of God has become part of this world by taking human nature to himself. So, if you remember, I talked about a couple weeks ago, the ancient Gnostic teachers, they viewed the bodies of women with horror, uh, but for Christians, the womb of a woman is the sacred venue of the divine action in the world. If you remember, the Gnostics didn't like the fact that God and Jesus could suffer, So, and, but in contrast to that, the early Christians say the Son of God, in fact, suffers in the flesh. He's crucified, he dies, he's buried, and his his very flesh is raised on the third day. And he continues to share our nature in the glory of the resurrection. So this, the third part of the creed that we're going to start taking a look at, and we'll take a look at it this week and next week, uh, we confess that God's spirit remains present in the midst of this world. Again, spiritual and material. Believers share in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit does not live on some higher plane that we have to access or escape to. Uh, The Spirit is here with us. As one theologian says, the Spirit befriends the body so that the life of the resurrection begins to appear already in our ordinary lives. I'm going to say that one more time. Because as we're going to talk about believing in the fact of eternal life or the life everlasting. But hear this. This is a little preview of what's going to come in a second. We believe that the life of the resurrection begins to appear now. It's not something we're waiting for at the end of our lives. We are on one level, but it appears now. So belief in bodily resurrection is one of the controlling undercurrents of the New Testament, you might say. Yet the nature of the resurrection, if you read your scriptures closely, it's hardly ever addressed directly. 
The gospel accounts never try to depict the resurrection itself. Think about the four gospels. Think of Mark, right? Mark's account does not even include a depiction of the risen Christ. We hear that the tomb is empty, and it is left to the reader to understand why. The other gospels, they depict the risen Jesus, but not the event of the resurrection itself. The tomb is already empty when the disciples get there. The resurrection has occurred in secret. It has happened, but it's, it's happened where? Has it happened in the tomb? Has it happened in hell? Has it happened in eternity? Wherever and however it happened, the event in the Gospels has already occurred. And that is why the disciples are faced with the decision whether to believe or not. The part of the scriptures that comes closest to explaining the resurrection is Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, you go home, we see uh, his argument is that we too will rise in the same way that Christ is risen. But as I said just a second ago, we don't have any clear picture of what a resurrection looks like. So Paul tries to explain it using the image of a seed. The body is now like a seed, and the life of the resurrection is like the seed becoming a tree. Notice the the seed and the tree, they don't look alike. You would not be able to guess the appearance of the tree by looking at the seed. Yet, their identity is the same. So in the same way, Paul says, our mortal bodies will be planted and will be raised immortal in Christ. And Paul calls this a mystery. So even as he explains it, it's a a mystery. In the coming life, we will be the same identical persons that we are now, yet unimaginably different. To quote Paul, we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So in this passage, Paul explains the meaning of the resurrection by not explaining it. He points to the mystery of the seed and the tree and offers that mystery as an explanation. So what Paul's doing here is he's leading us right to the edge of what we can grasp or imagine. And he's kind of leading us there. It's as if it's too much. He leaves it as a mystery. So, that leaves us with, what are we really claiming to believe when we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body? Well, one view that's been given down to us since the third century by uh, Origen, um, and Origen gets a little into a little bit of trouble for other things that he says in church history, but this is not an area where he gets into trouble. So, here, here, here it goes. In fact, people quote him on this to this day. Origen noted that the baptismal confession, the Apostles' Creed, does not speak of the resurrection of bodies, but the resurrection of the body singular. This is Origen here. He's saying perhaps what is raised up on the last day will not be individuals so much, but the very body of Christ, a single person. 
person that incorporates the whole of humanity with Jesus as its head. Where does Origen get this? Does he get this out of a clear blue sky? He doesn't. His line of reasoning is based on Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. Do you remember that story in Ezekiel? What the prophet sees in this vision is not a multitude of individual resurrections, but one corporate resurrection of the whole house of Israel. So in the same way, our hope, Christian hope, is never just hope for myself. It is hope for myself. It is hope for you. But it is more than hope for me. It is a social hope. It is a hope for humanity. The only future that I may legitimately hope for is a future that also includes my neighbor. So as his sermon comes to an end, Origen goes a step further. He says that if Jesus is the head, then he must be waiting for his body to assemble. It is as if Jesus' resurrection itself were still incomplete. This is a quote from Origen. His joy awaits until the whole body of humanity has been raised. So if God's intention is to bring forth a single redeemed body, then the eternal joy of the life to come depends in some measure upon us. Not in the way that we're often told, right? Be righteous and you'll be made right with God. But the joy of Jesus is on hold until we take up our place with him. This is the remarkable conclusion that Origen reaches in his sermons. Nevertheless, this still leaves us no closer to being able to form a clear picture of the life of the world to come. So what do we Christians hope for? Perhaps it's enough to say that Christian hope is a social and therefore an embodied hope. And that this hope centers on the communion with the life, with the person of Jesus. We learn these things not by speculating about the afterlife, but by contemplating the risen Jesus and accepting by faith the things that are revealed in him. So most of all, what we get, believing in the resurrection of the body, what we know about Jesus is that he is the lover of humanity. So that the life we await for will be a life of love. Now there's a lot of mystery there. may not be the most clear thing, but I hope to make it a little bit clearer here in this next phrase we're going to look at from the Creed. I believe in the life that is everlasting, or I believe in eternal life. So if you think about it, how many of you have seen The Good Place, that show? Anybody here? Um, it's actually a really good show. That said, the ending, I wasn't thrilled about. But I'm going to give the ending a little bit of credit here at the beginning. Uh, and those of you who've watched it, I'll try it. You don't need to have watched it. Maybe you can go home and watch it. But what the, the authors of that show are saying is the same thing the author I'm going to mention in a second has said. So, there is nothing especially appealing about the thought of living forever when you really think about it. The Argentine writer... I'm going to butcher his name, forgive me for those of you who know and love him, but Jorge Luis Borges tells the story of a man who drinks 
from a river of immortality and becomes immortal. But without death, life lacks definition. It doesn't mean anything. One day the man learns of another river that, he, that can take immortality away. And so for centuries he wanders the earth and drinks from every spring and river, seeking to end the curse of endless life. Death, writes the author, makes men precious and pathetic. Their ghostliness is touching. Any act they perform may be their last. Why do I resonate with what he's saying? And why have Christians who really have thought about the afterlife, eternal life, resonate with what this author is saying? With what the creators of the good place put forth? Because you cannot make life better just by increasing its quantity. What matters most is quality. Think about the Gospel of John, right? The Gospel of John says that eternal life is about quality, not quantity. It is a quality of life that believers experience already. What I mentioned just earlier. We experience this eternal life already when we attach ourselves to Jesus. As Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Anyone who hears my word and believes in me, and the one who sent me, has eternal life. So just John, just like Paul, with the resurrection of the body, John does not really explain this special quality of life, or he doesn't define it, is probably a better way of saying except by saying that eternal life The life everlasting is identical with Jesus himself. The Son of God is the one who is truly and fully alive. And all other living things are alive through him. And we see in John, he he even uses the term eternal life as a title for Jesus. He is called the eternal life that was with the Father. And when we get close to this personal life source, we begin to share his quality of life, is what John is saying. So we too become fully and truly alive. John writes this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Remember that passage in John, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So when we confess that we believe in eternal life, we're not talking about the duration of life, but about a relationship. In the person of Jesus, we find ourselves drawn into a quality of life that is so rich that it can only be described as eternal. Again, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and might have it abundantly. And he's not talking about when you die alone, he's talking about now. So here's an attempt at a way of explaining this. Think of the embrace of lovers. Maybe you've experienced this yourself, or maybe you've seen other people experience this. Uh, when lovers embrace, they feel something, they feel sometimes that time itself has stopped, and the whole world is smaller than the space of their small room. 
An intense experience of love can alter our ordinary perceptions and seem to lift us beyond the limits of time and space. I mean, this is why so many of our poets and philosophers speak of the eternal quality of love. And it is also why uh, every experience of love has something tragic about it, too. Even when you're in those moments of euphoria, when you feel that you have transcended time itself, we know that it cannot last. Uh, Love is fragile and fleeting. Uh, Even if you are to stay in that space with your lover until you die, you know there is an end date. Perhaps eternal life is something like that intense experience of love, but without the shadow of tragedy. When we experience life in its fullness, death is rendered obsolete. So, as we, as we say at every funeral, and these are the words of Jesus, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is so truly and fully alive that to him, even death is really another way of being alive. When we find our way to the living source of life, to Jesus himself, we discover that death is not really death anymore. Death has lost its sting, to quote scripture. Even in death, our relationship to Jesus is not broken. So in a sense, death itself becomes another place where we can go to find him. For wherever we go, in this life and in the next, he waits to meet us there. Uh, because of Pope Francis, right? Francis, St. Francis of Assisi is the bomb.com right now. But he says this. He's writing in the 13th century. And uh, if you remember, he wrote that famous hymn. It's called The Canticle of the Sun. Uh, and Francis in this canticle sees everything in the light of God's love. And so he sees everything as his friend. Every creature is his friend. If you remember, he sings praise to Brother, sun, sister, moon, brother, fire, sister, water. And after uh, spreading his joy over the whole of creation, he turns to sister death herself and he greets even her as a friend. Because as we see in this canticle, Francis has forgotten how to be afraid. He has found his way to the source of life, to eternal life itself now. And he meets Jesus everywhere, even in death. And so he never, even though he does, he never really dies, but enters more deeply into life. That's what he's getting across anyway. So, go back to the lover's analogy. Lovers embracing in their room, they often forget that time is passing or that the world outside itself even exists. Fleetingly, they rise above time to this eternal moment. What would it mean for the whole of life to be caught up in that moment? Perhaps, as some of the early Christians write, we wouldn't even notice that death had been overcome. We would be so preoccupied by life 
and love. And uh, I'm going to end on this. Irenaeus, the great early, early church father, says he describes eternal life as a kind of blessed forgetfulness. One day, he says, believers will share so fully in the life of God that they will forget to die. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.